Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, and actually giving some thought to the introduction this morning, I actually discovered a new word that I hadn't previously known. The word is diamatic, diamatic. Anybody know what diamatic means? I'll be really impressed if any of us do. A diamatic? A diamatic actually comes from a Greek word meaning to frighten, and it references the pattern of certain species that when they are under some kind of attack, they change their uh, appearance in some kind of way. Maybe they appear to be larger than what they actually are. Sometimes when it comes to species like moths or butterflies, they actually expand their wings to show more color or to make themselves look more imposing or larger than what they actually are. Uh, Often toads and snakes have this kind of behavior. They puff themselves out so that they're being approached by a predator, and the predator sees that they're larger than what they actually are, and therefore is a little bit more reluctant to attack them and possibly eat them. Uh, They do that because it's a means of self-protection. Uh, puffer fish might know what a puffer fish is. Uh, it's probably one of the more popularly known animals that fall into this category. They puff themselves out as a defense mechanism if they are threatened, and they actually become more than double in their original size to hopefully ward off some kind of predator or attacker. You know, sometimes when I think about that, Sometimes I think as followers of Jesus, and maybe even as churches, we can have some of those same behaviors. We may have a defense mechanism that we make ourselves look larger. Maybe we have this awkward sense that as a follower of Jesus, as a believer in Jesus, we actually might be in the minority of our culture. Our understanding of who God is and his truth and the truth of the gospel isn't necessarily something that's as broadly accepted as possibly it once was. And so when we're met with a threat, maybe it's in the moral realm, a theological realm, whatever it is, we kind of tend to maybe puff ourselves out to make ourselves look more imposing and powerful than we actually are. Sometimes churches do that, maybe in the political realm. We're certainly called to speak truth into those areas, but we can kind of have this sense of of puffing ourselves out, making ourselves look more imposing, fearing that we're going to look too timid or too small or too weak to deal with imposing danger around. Us. In the church of Philadelphia this morning that we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 2, verses 7 through 13, Jesus actually says to this church that he knows that they have little strength. He knows that they're weak. And guess what? He's actually okay with that. He still says, before you, there's an open door. Even though you have little strength, I'm still going to use you in my movement in this world. So we're going to look at this letter to the church in Philadelphia. Sure, God was going to come and read that for us. And it's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 7 through 13. So as we've done most weeks, why don't we stand together as we stand kind of with a sense of standing before God, standing in his presence, uh, making ourselves available to him, realizing that he's our teacher. uh, He is our teacher. We are the students. We are the humble listeners uh, before his teaching. So Sheriff, you could read the letter to Revelation uh, or letter to Philadelphia in Revelation chapter two, verses seven through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write... These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, 
but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Cher. And uh, you can be seated. We're going to talk about three things this morning from this text. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in the first one, and then just a little bit more briefly touch on the following two. Uh, The first one is simply this, a door. Uh, Before we get to that, here's how Jesus begins this letter or these comments to this church in in Philadelphia. By the way, just a reminder again, uh, these are actually literal towns and churches in what is now modern-day Turkey that used to be Asia Minor. It's going to be a map up on the screens, again, just to refresh your mind. uh, There's an area of Asia Minor, then there's these are the seven churches laid out. There's the one Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, lastly Laodicea. Uh, the best as we can tell, it's probably a tr- some kind of trade route, possibly a mail route that this letter took as it was read to those respective churches. And so this one is to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, here's what he, Jesus says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. These are the words of him who is holy and true. When we think of holy, automatically what we typically think of is sinlessness, perfection in that sense. And and holy certainly includes that under the umbrella, but it's also much more than that. Holy is set apart. Holy is different. Holy is given as an attribute to Yahweh prominently in the prophetic book of Isaiah. Often in Isaiah, we read the Holy One of Israel, and Holy One of Israel had reference to Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. And so when Jesus says he is the Holy One, he is the true one, he's directly referencing that he himself is equal to Yahweh. He is God. He also says, I am true. I speak that which is true. Now, as a citizen, I highly advocate voting. I'm a voter, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. But if you're anything like me, you probably also have a sense of getting a little bit tired of all of the political ad campaigns. Anybody with me on that? Yeah, kind of like one after the other, after the other, after the And what does every political campaign, what does every political ad try to communicate to you? that this candidate is holy and true, right? I mean, that's the goal of the ad. This candidate is distinct from the other. This other candidate is the one who lies. This is the one who who is true. The other candidate has this particular position, but this candidate is the one who is holy, set apart, different. He'll be the rescuer. He'll be the savior. He'll be the one who speaks truth. Now, we all know that that really can't be trusted. We all know that no other human being is holy and true. But friends, here's what I want you to know. Jesus alone is holy and true. Jesus is distinct. Jesus is separate then. Jesus is not some other sort of political commentator or voice giving his position. Jesus is truly holy and true. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is eternal God. And what Jesus says actually is true. You know, wherever we go these days, whether it's campaign ads, whether it's some sort of clickbait topic, whether it's some kind of sensationalized language. We try to use language that demonstrates this is holy and true. Friends, there might be degrees of that, but there's only one that is holy and true, and that is the person of Jesus. He says, who holds the key of David? 
uh, earlier on in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, it said of Jesus, and I hold the keys of death and Hades, referring to the realm of the dead. And so maybe we're kind of more easily drawn to the fact that, yeah, Jesus is in charge of death. We kind of get that. We sort of understand it. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that he holds the key of David. What in the world does that mean? Well, the idea actually comes directly out of the book of Isaiah, where in Isaiah's time, there's this guy called Eliakim. And while all of Jerusalem and Judah was kind of straying away from God, Eliakim was lifted up as this one who faithfully served God and faithfully served his promises within Jerusalem as well as Judah. Here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. I will place on his shoulder, that is Eliakim, the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And so this is far beyond Jesus holding the keys to the realm of the dead. This is actually Jesus holding all dominion and power and authority to rule and reign. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it's often kind of seen as, as the fulfillment of this. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen, friends, here's the deal with Jesus. Jesus is not just interested in getting souls from earth to heaven. He's not just interested in getting souls from eternal destruction or judgment to eternal life. Jesus is interested in ruling and governing and having dominion over the whole thing. In a couple of weeks, we'll be celebrating Christmas, a little more than a couple, but in a couple of months, this next season, we'll be celebrating Christmas. One of the things that we looked at last year, in fact, it was our key verse for the Christmas season, and I just kind of was, have been meditating on this and letting it sink in. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, here's what it says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and then it says, and the blank will be on his shoulders. Anybody know what's in the blank? And the the government will be on his shoulders. We often, something that often escapes us, the government will be on his shoulders. Not just heaven and hell, not just the keys to death and Hades, not just eternal life and eternal judgment, but the government. In other words, how things happen on planet earth, how things happen in our world, the dominion, the power, the government, how things are orchestrated will actually be orchestrated by the Holy One himself. He is the one who is faithful and true. One commentator says this, all of Revelation, in fact, the whole of the Bible is about the kingdom of God. As the son of David, Jesus holds the key to this kingdom. He has thrown open the door for the nations to come in, and nothing can stop it. In his death and resurrection, in his ascension and the sending of his spirit, Jesus has opened the door for the gospel to go forward. Jesus is pointing the church in Philadelphia toward the open door and promising to use them to extend his kingdom to every corner of the earth. Listen, friends, Jesus' purposes will absolutely be fulfilled. Jesus is holy and true. There's a lot that gets in the way of various political campaigns and political movements and a ton of other things. Nothing will get in the way of Jesus fulfilling the government being on his shoulders. I love the vision of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. It's one of my favorite verses. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you just, like, just go home and meditate on that? Like, how much do the waters cover the sea? Uh, kind of. You can't even separate them. I mean, the waters and the sea are like this. Habakkuk or Habakkuk, whatever you want to pronounce it, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the, there will be a day when the one who is holy and true, the one who is perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect beauty, perfect love, perfect harmony, there's going to be a day when the knowledge will permeate the earth fully because the government's going to be on his shoulders rather than ours. Friends, if that doesn't pump you up with hope, excitement, and anticipation, 
Like, I don't know what does, because that's an amazing thing. He goes on, verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my words and have not denied my name. Commentators see see this maybe a little differently sometimes. In some ways, maybe the open door is simply, I have presented you an open door. In other words, you will not be thwarted from being in my presence. There's nothing that can stop you from being in my eternal presence. But it also seems like included in that is this idea of an open door of opportunity because he references the fact that they have, have little strength. He says, even though you have little strength, even though it seems like you don't matter, because you belong to the one who is holy and true, because you belong to the one who will accomplishes his purposes, you are actually invited in to participate with him in his movement. Listen, friends, we are not called to be puffer fish. We don't have to pretend to be larger than what we are. We're not called to be winners. We're called to be servants. We're not called to be champions. We're called to be victorious in Christ. We're not called to be pufferfish. We're called to be simply who we are. And that may quite honestly be of little strength, but little strength placed in God's hands becomes something amazing. God does not ask us to be strong and powerful. God asks us to be faithful and obedient. God does not ask us to accomplish supersized tasks. He asks us to give him trust and obedience. God does not ask us to trust him in what we accomplish. He asks us to trust him in what he can accomplish through us. Listen, friends. Sometimes in our day, it can be easier to get more, be more excited about accomplishing great things for God rather than simply obeying him. It can be more thrilling to try to accomplish some grandiose, world-changing, life-impacting accomplishment or task. And that's often has a greater level of excitement and draw than simply, are you offering God your daily obedience? Are you offering God your routine life? Are you offering God your normal obedience to what he desires for you to do in your everyday life? And sometimes it's easier to get more revved up over accomplishing a task than simply following Jesus faithfully in obedience to trust in him. Trusting in what we can accomplish is measuring things by what is seen. Trusting in what we can accomplish is measuring things by visible outcome. Trusting in what we can accomplish is measuring by noticeable impact. And one of the favorite stories, I guess there's lots of favorite stuff I have, but one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is, is when this Jesus is going to feed thousands of people. And what does he use as he feeds thousands of people? He uses the lunch of a young boy who has five loaves and two fish. That's what he has. And Jesus uses that, and he multiplies it in order to be thousands of people. And so the question Jesus would have for the people in Philadelphia is, yes, you're poor. You might have, or go through the door, you might have little strength. My question for all of us this morning is, what is the open door before you? What's, what's your lunch that Jesus is asking for you to give to him, for him to multiply so that others can be impacted? You know, our church and many of you are on our helping hands email list. And so many of you make meals for those who might have come out of a hospital stay. Maybe those who experience the death of a loved one get meals and you all sign up. We all sign up to provide meals. That might seem like a little thing, but placed in God's hands, it multiplies. I've heard from people who have said, you know what? Sometimes in a moment of stress, I even forget to eat, except that somebody from Southridge has a meal that's been made. What is it that maybe you say you have little strength, but even though you have little strength, God can use it. Maybe some of you are 
moms and dads. And I loved it a few weeks ago when we had child dedication. We had like 14 babies dedicated. And often in our culture, sometimes having a family can kind of be seen as being an obstacle to pursuing other realms of financial or uh, some other kind of success, some other kind of positional success. And so having a family might be seen in our culture as kind of minimizing your own opportunity to pursue your personal realm of pleasure and life and opportunity. It can come as a hindrance to forward progress toward affluency or position or status. But the message of scripture is actually the opposite. And maybe it seems unseen. Maybe it seems invisible. Maybe it doesn't seem world-impacting, friends. But let me simply tell you, if you are building into the life of your child a love for God and a sense of that child developing his life around the truth of Scripture, you are having a world impact. Not because you see it immediately, but because it's done in obedience and faithfulness to God. Some of you who are men might need to take the responsibility of leading your family in prayer. And maybe in our culture, that's not a very manly thing to do. To lead your family in a spiritual conversation that may feel a little bit vulnerable, that may feel a bit more squishy than the typical man topics. Like like praying to this unseen God may not seem quite as as manly and dripping of masculinity as some of the other things that our culture celebrates. But what if the door before you is leading your family toward loving Jesus a little bit more, toward understanding who he is a little bit more? Maybe it's even more basic or simple than that. You know, periodically I listen to sports radio or something like back and forth to work, but pretty often these days I just turn it off. So like, man, like let me just talk to God. And so maybe there's like a particular place on your way to work where you come to that place and you're like, no more radio, no more, po-. maybe it's even a podcast about God, and whatever it is, no more podcasts, no more music, no more radio. Like from here, from this place to this place, I'm going to have 10 minutes of just talking to God. I'm going to have 10 minutes of prayer. And it's, that's maybe your open door. And it doesn't seem big. It doesn't seem world-changing. But maybe placing that in the hands of God is actually something powerful that you can do. Mother Teresa said, not all of us can do great things, but all of us, but we can all do small things with great love. Kind of launching on that, maybe what I would say is, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great faith. We might not all be able to do great things. None of us, in fact, can. But every, every single one of us can do small things with great faith. We can pray in great faith. We can offer a word of encouragement to somebody in great faith. We can pray for somebody in great faith. We can shepherd our children in great faith. We can make a meal for somebody in great faith. And so we may not be able to do great things, but man, what would it look like if we actually considered ourselves as weak and said, you know what, I'm going to do this something in great faith because that's the open door in front of me. What's the door? Secondly, I'm going to look at this word, kept, kept. Verse 9, it actually comes in verse 10, but verse 9 by way of intro a little bit, I will make those of you who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. I'm not going to dive into that too deeply, but I do want to say this. For the second time in these letters, we, we read the synagogue of Satan. Now, the synagogue was the place where the Jewish people gathered to worship God. Uh, The root of the word Satan comes from the Hebrew, has the idea of accuser, one who gives accusation or slanders against. 
And so when Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan, it's pretty severe language. It's pretty harsh. And I want to kind of make a note of that, especially in a day where we see comments of anti-Semitism rising, a mindset that's more anti-Jewish. We see an increase in our culture on attacks of, of synagogues on Jewish people. And so it's important that we kind of understand what's happening here. Jesus is not condoning a spirit of animosity or anger or attack toward those who are Jewish. At the same time, Scripture has fairly strong words for the Jewish nation that God had spoken to in ancient times. He had revealed himself to them. And yet when Jesus came as the Messiah, when he was born into that Jewish environment, when he, he himself was Jewish, his own people did not receive him. They did not recognize that this was actually God in flesh among them, that this was the kind of the fulfillment of his plan that he kept on telling them about. And so God actually has had very strong words to say against the nation of Israel's rejection, the Jewish people's rejection of the Messiah, of the person of Jesus. In AD 70, the, there was the fall of Jerusalem. It was a horrific, cataclysmic event of that time. And it seems to be directly connected as God's judgment to the Jewish people rejecting him as Messiah. And yet we also know that, man, it's through the Jewish people that God has brought about his plan of salvation. Scripture makes it clear that through the Jewish people that God worked in ancient history. It is through the Jewish people God's plan of salvation now extends to all peoples of the earth. It is through the Jewish people that Jesus was born. It is through the Jewish people that those of us who are believers in Jesus have salvation. It is through the Jewish people that one day the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It is through the Jewish people that we have become God's sons and daughters. There's a new creation coming because of the work that God did through the Jewish people. And so friends, as followers of Jesus, who himself was Jewish, we have great admiration and respect for the people group that God used to bring about his plan of salvation. All tribes, all nations, all languages, all ethnicities are honored and valued by God. But particularly the Jewish people were used to birth the person of Jesus and bring about God's plan of salvation for the earth. And so Christianity, very specifically, has no room for anti-Semitism, has no room for reactions against the Jewish people. Yes, there's some harsh words spoken to them in Scripture of their rejection for Jesus. Yes, they're going to be held accountable to God for that. But as followers of Jesus, we recognize that God has used them in bringing about his plan of salvation into the world. And verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the, onto the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I want to look at that second word, keep. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Quite honestly, there's a lot of ink spilled as to what this verse means. Uh, once again, we remind ourselves that this letter was written directly to the church of Philadelphia. And it comes at the point of the letter where the comments are directed directly to that church in ancient times. And yet we also know that there's a level of application, not just to that church, but God's people across time. There's a lot of debate, particularly what it means when it says, keep you from the hour of trial, because there's a number of ways that can be translated. It can be translated, kept out of, you know, removed from. It can also be translated in a sense of being kept safely through. And so there's differences of opinion as to what that means. But I would simply suffice it to say, whichever way that you go, what that verse is drawing at is simply this. God is the one who is the protector of his people in difficult times. 
In John chapter 17, verse 15, I probably think it leads some sort of light as to how to interpret this, this verse. In John 17, Jesus says this, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It's exactly the same word in Greek as we find in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I'm going to keep you from the evil one. I'm going to keep you in the world, but keep you from the evil one. And so there could be an indication that the translation here is more, you're going to be experiencing trials, but I'm going to keep you from, I'm going to protect you from the attacks of the evil one within those trials. But again, however you want to interpret that, the issue is simply this. Jesus is the faithful one who is our protector. Often, the trials that we find in our world, the crises that we find in our world, cause it to disintegrate. Crisis and trial cause our world to rage. Crisis and trial cause our world to become hopeless. Crisis and trial in our world cause our world to have deeper despair. Crisis and trial cause our world to have desolation, causes it to have anguish and agony. It causes it to have misery, gloom, and fear. Crisis and trial cause our world to have dejection and despondency. And yet we also know from Scripture that trials impact followers of Jesus differently than it impacts the world. While it brings desperation and dejection and gloom and despair to our world, it's actually an opportunity for joy and life for those who are followers of Jesus. Trial and crisis, according to James, is an opportunity for joy. It's an opportunity to live more deeply in Christ. It's an opportunity to live more deeply in peace. It's an opportunity to live more deeply as citizens of heaven. It's an opportunity to live more deeply in our identity as God's sons and daughters. Crisis and trial is an opportunity for us to live more deeply in our confident assurance of Christ's victory. It's an opportunity to live more deeply in the unseen than the seen. So here's what I want to tell you, friends. Any trial that we go through, yes, Jesus delivers us from some, Many times he allows us to go through hardship. He allows us to go through trials, but he protects us in it. Jesus is with us. There's nothing that the accuser, the adversary can do to blemish us in our standing with the person of Jesus. In fact, it's an opportunity to sink the roots of our lives more deeply into the fact that we're his children. Charles Spurgeon says this, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Let me say that again. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Sometimes trial, sometimes hardship, sometimes tribulation, sometimes crisis allows us to see the emptiness of everything but Christ. We see the emptiness of pursuing popularity. We see the emptiness of pursuing status. We see the emptiness of pursuing wealth. We see the emptiness of pursuing our selfish ambitions. We finally see the emptiness so we can live more deeply in the fullness of Christ. Like, I don't know what you're going through right now, friends. But what if the hardship that you're going through right now, God's going to allow you to continue to go through it. But what if it's an opportunity for you to live more deeply in Christ? To see the emptiness of pursuing everything else, but to drink and eat more deeply of the person of Jesus. What if your trial, what if your crisis, what if your hardship is an opportunity to know Jesus more deeply? Lastly, is the word victorious. Victorious. This word shows up in every letter to the churches in Revelation. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. 
and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He begins the one who is victorious. I just want to talk about that for a minute. When Revelation talks about being victorious in these letters to the churches, what it's talking about is simply this. To live victorious is to live in faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. To live victorious is to continue to live in Christ and if your faith solidly placed in him, even when things around you begin to shift and shake. And so maybe the question that we can wrestle with is simply this. Is your definition of victorious the same as the definition that's given to it in the book of Revelation? What is your definition of victorious? Is it being faithful to Jesus? Is it having your life rooted and grounded in his truth? Or is your definition of victorious a little bit differently than how Jesus frames it in the letters to the churches in Revelation? Is your de definition of victorious being popular? Is it one of self-fulfillment? Is it one of ambition, personal ambition? Or is your definition of victorious one of following after Jesus? What does it look like for your family to be victorious? Does it look like your kids to have the best education they can have? To excel at the best sports they can possibly excel at? Again, none of those things are wrong things. They can all be amazing gifts and blessings. They're simply not the ultimate definition of what it means to be victorious. Having a great job, making great income is a tremendous blessing and it's a tremendous gift. It's, not, it's just not the ultimate definition of what it means to be victorious. For us to be victorious often looks like having more and more me time, time that's about me. I love what John Piper says. It's a quote he made many years earlier. He said, one of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day, that prayerless was not from lack of time. It's really convicting, isn't it? Let me just read that again. It says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will to be to prove on the last day that our prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Because victorious for us often means being effective on social media and social communication. But is victorious for you having a life of prayer with the triune God? Is the victorious life living one of communion with God? We're going to celebrate communion in just a bit. And as we get ready to do that, let me just remind you of these promises that Jesus gives to those who are victorious. It's promises that all relate to living in communion with him because that's the ultimate reward. He says, you'll be a pillar in my temple. The temple was the place of the presence of God. Pillars were often kind of the last thing standing in ancient ruins. Jesus says, you're going to be a pillar in my temple. You're going to remain standing in my presence. Listen, friends, is that your definition of victory? Is your definition of victory as well? Like someday, I will be in God's presence. He says, I will write upon him the name of my God the name of the city of my God, my new name. All of those are different ways of saying this truth, that if you're victorious, you're going to enjoy my presence. You're going to be my personal possession. You're going to be my sons and daughters. And there's going to be nothing to dilute that. And so this morning as we celebrate what we call communion. It really is that. 
Communion is this time where we take a wafer that represents Jesus' broken body. We eat it. It becomes our bread. It's what sustains us. We take a cup of juice that represents Jesus' shed blood because his broken body, his shed blood on a cross are what provide the way of our communion with him. And our communion with him is our daily bread. It's what gives us life. Our fellowship with him, our communion with him is what gives us life. Is that victorious to you? Or do you kind of have another definition of what the victorious life looks for you? Does the victorious life look like living in communion with God? Does the victorious life look like one day you'll be in his presence and the glory of the knowledge of God will cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea? Listen, friends, this is a time of communion. This is a time of fellowship. This is a time of taking the elements in celebration of exactly what Jesus is saying to this church. I'm going to write my new name on you. You're going to be a pillar in my temple. The name of the city of my God is going to be on you. My new name is going to be on you. In other words, my presence, my communion will be with you. And so as we take these elements, let's do so truly in communion with God. Let's do so in anticipation of this day when his presence will cover the earth. It's not necessary for you to be a member of Southridge to participate in communion. We simply ask that you be a follower of Jesus, that you've embraced communion with the Father through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross. Because it's through Jesus that our sins are forgiven, that we're made sons and daughters of God, that we participate in communion with Yahweh, with Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. So to do that, we have a wafer, we have a cup of juice. And the second, I'll invite you forward and you can take this back to your seats. There's stations in the balcony, one's in the aisle. If you would rather remain seated during this time, you can certainly do that. Don't feel an obligation to participate. If you simply want to remain seated, it's totally fine. Just continue to reflect with us. So why don't we stand, move to one of these stations, take the wafer and cup of juice back to your seat, and then we'll take it together in community as we commune with God in his presence. Let me read this to you. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. 
Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. The essence of sin is that we become puffer fish. The essence of sin is that we place ourselves in God's place. We become the authority. We call the shots. All dominion, power, and authority is given to us. That's the essence of sin. The essence of the gospel is the one who legitimately has all power and authority and dominion puts himself in our place. He's crucified on a cross. He lowers himself. Sin is us grasping for God's position. The gospel is God taking our position. Friends, there's nothing more powerful than the gospel. And so it's Jesus' broken body. It's his shed blood that gives us communion with God. It's the pathway to us becoming pillars in his temple. It's a pathway to the new city coming from heaven to earth. It's the pathway to his presence. So let's eat and drink the elements in community with one another and in communion with God. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing this final medley of songs. It's, I exalt thee and I love you, Lord. And let's sing this in an ongoing spirit of communion. Let's sing this as an extension of our communing with God. Let's tell him, God, we love you. We want to live in community with you. God, we extol you. Thank you for giving us communion with you. Let's sing these songs together.
Let's sing together. thank you that we can commune with you thank you for communion we look forward to the day when our communion with you will be uninterrupted when your glory covers the earth as the water covers the sea we look forward to that day and until then May we serve you faithfully and obediently. And may we be victorious. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Amen. Our prayer team is down here to the right. God bless. Have a wonderful day. Continue your communion with the Lord throughout the week.